All right, it is about two minutes after, so um, let's go ahead and get started. Um, so it's my absolute pleasure to introduce our speaker today, who's Dr. Stephanie uh, Parks-Taylor. So Dr. Taylor is a professor of medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at Wake Forest Atrium Health. Um, I just dropped in the chat um, a link for everyone to PubMed, which is a link to the paper I read that um, got me interested in the works that Dr. Taylor does. Um, and so this work is about clinical subtypes of sepsis survivors and how that is related to and predicts their uh, readmission and mortality. So if you haven't read her work, uh, please check out the link I put in the chat. And without further ado, Dr. Taylor, thank you again for being here. I'm really excited to hear your talk. Thanks, Andrea. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on this Friday afternoon. I'm sure there's a lot of other things folks would rather be doing, but um, I appreciate you uh, here to um, let me talk a little bit about sepsis survivors. Um, just a kind of broad view of what we're going to talk about. Briefly, I'll kind of overview some of the adverse outcomes that we see um, after sepsis. We'll talk about a few different care delivery models for providing post-sepsis care. And then I'll talk specifically about um, kind of the topic that Andrea mentioned, which is our, our work in kind of phenotyping sepsis survivors in a way that kind of classifies them in a, in a way that helps target interventions. So this is not news to any of you, but sort of the elephant in the room for acute care medicine is, is sepsis. It's, it's the most prevalent condition causing hospitalization in the United States um, and certainly the most expensive um, condition. So, so really a, a big deal from a patient perspective and a healthcare standpoint. For a long time, we sort of conceptualized sepsis as this acute illness. So you would get an infection and a dysregulated host response. Um, but if you were able to kind of eradicate the bacteria, quell the cytokines, patients did fine. That was sort of the idea is that you could cure their sepsis and they would go back to their regular lives and not really experience long-term effects. But over the past decade or so, more and more literature has come out, more data have come out that have suggested that sepsis is really often more of kind of a chronic illness and one that's associated with persistent uh, impairments and persistent problems for patients. And I really like this um, this uh, diagram showing sort of a trajectory of sepsis. Um, this is from Hallie Prescott's work uh, in JAMA a couple years ago. So thinking of the, the nadir sort of here at the hospitalization for sepsis, um, there's resolution of that acute episode, which we used to think was sort of the victory, the war is over, we've saved our patients. Um, but we've spent more time understanding more about this recovery period. So down the road, even after you've recovered your patients from that initial sepsis episode, they still um, continue to enter this sort of long-term recovery phase. And for some patients, they're fine. They approach their pre-sepsis health status and they do fine. Some patients are left with persistent impairments. And some patients in the long term continue to suffer further health deterioration and can die as a long-term consequence of their sepsis. And so this is more than kind of just an academic uh, issue to think about. It's really a public health issue in terms of numbers. So we talked about what a big deal sepsis was in the acute phase or as an acute illness. But given that most patients now survive sepsis, we've gotten much better with early detection and treatment. We've just seen massively increasing numbers of sepsis survivors. Um, and this estimate from 2019 was that 1.4 million sepsis survivors were discharged from the hospital in the United States each year. Um, and this is, is pre-COVID. So when you think about adding all of the COVID survivors um, that have kind of a parallel experience, this is a massive public health problem that we really need to um, focus on and understand more. 
And so again, just kind of this reconceptualization that sepsis, surviving sepsis doesn't necessarily mean that patients have a restored quality of life. And in fact, sepsis survivors frequently face multiple impairments across all kinds of domains of health status. So in terms of physical function, sepsis survivors uh, acquire one to two new limitations in ADLs after sepsis. So patients who were previously independent or patients who had previously had um, some impairments, they acquire additional impairments in ADLs after sepsis as a result of that illness. Um, cognitive impairment is common after sepsis. So about 15 to 20% of sepsis survivors will uh, experience moderate to severe cognitive impairment after that illness. Um, mental health challenges, as you can imagine, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder um, being common among sepsis survivors. And sepsis survivors have trouble kind of rejoining their social social roles, um, including re-entering uh, re the workforce. All of this is kind of complicated and, and contributes to and is fed into um, this cycle of uh, increased rehospitalization, which is kind of the focus of a lot of our work. Um, estimates vary depending on what population you look at, but in terms of rehospitalization, about one in three sepsis survivors will get readmitted to the hospital within 90 days. Um, and that frequency rivals or exceeds that of other conditions like heart failure, pneumonia, MI, conditions that we have focused hospital readmission prevention um, efforts towards, and sepsis is, is higher than most of those. Patients who survive sepsis have twice the rate of readmission compared to patients at survive other reasons for hospitalization. Um, and like I mentioned before, sepsis-related readmissions uh, comprise a substantial amount of readmission-related costs. Um, just looking a little bit more about the readmissions, and uh, this was a study of about a million patients in the HCAP database, um, where they had about a little under 20% of sepsis survivors were readmitted at 30 days. A quarter of those readmissions occurred in the first five days, and half of the readmissions occurred in about the first 10 days. So really getting the idea that that transition period where people are uh, especially vulnerable and that, that there may be the possible possibility of intervening at that point to change the trajectory of their outcomes. Um, whoops. So you may be wondering, what are sepsis survivors readmitted for? Is it just uh, more infection? Um, and this uh, table shows the top 10 readmission diagnoses after hospitalization for sepsis. So this is a um, VA population. It's stratified by age. So the left column is patients under 65 years old. The right column is patients 65 years and older. And it lists the top 10 diagnoses for why they are readmitted after an index sepsis hospitalization. And you may be surprised. I was a little surprised at first that heart failure is the number one reason for readmission after sepsis. It occurred in 5% of sepsis survivors um, under 65 and a half percent of sepsis survivors over 65 years old. Other causes for readmission are things you might expect more commonly, pneumonia, um, recurrent sepsis, renal injury, those type of things. And so a really important question when we talk about readmissions, especially when we look to, uh, to do something about it, is how much are these readmissions actually preventable? Um, sepsis is a really serious illness, um, and patients are really sick afterwards, and they often are really sick going into sepsis. So maybe they're getting readmitted because they're just really sick, and there's nothing you can do about it. So this was a really clever um, framing of the question um, by uh, Hallie Prescott. Um, and so what she did is she looked at the different reasons for readmission after sepsis, 
and categorize those reasons according to whether or not they were ambulatory care sensitive conditions. And if you're not familiar with that term, an ambulatory care sensitive condition is this classification of conditions that theoretically, if they had been um, identified and treated in the outpatient space, it would have avoided a rehospitalization. And according to that classification, uh, almost half or 42% of readmissions after sepsis were classified as ambulatory care sensitive. So almost half of readmissions were considered potentially preventable with sort of increased outpatient attention and increased outpatient support. I also want to point out, in addition to readmissions, that um, late mortality is a common consequence um, after sepsis. Um, so even if patients survive that hospital mortality where more and more patients are surviving, they have a persistent increased risk for mortality that persists um, two to five years after that initial sepsis event. And so this study was in Medicare data, so older patients, um, more than one in five sepsis survivors um, died within the two-year follow-up period after sepsis, and more than half of those deaths were unexplained by non-sepsis or pre-sepsis factors. So the idea is that at least half of these deaths were thought to be directly um, attributable to the sepsis event itself. Um, kind of same thing here. This was a, a younger population, um, and this, these investigators found that there was an increased risk for mortality that persisted up to five years um, follow-up after um, sepsis. And in this case, the, that effect was stronger in patients that were younger and patients that had more severe illness. So even after patients are surviving sepsis, when we're like blowing the horn and saying we did such a good job saving them, they still have an increased risk for mortality at least five years after that hospital discharge. Um, and so what's causing all these adverse events? What are the mechanisms that lead to these adverse events after sepsis? And really, I could just leave the question mark up there and stop there because we don't really know. Um, we're still uh, kind of working this out and thinking through this and trying to understand why patients have these persistent um, adverse events, even after the, you know, bacteria is cleared, even after the cytokines have kind of quelled. What is it that's causing persistent problems for patients? Um, and again, we're still kind of figuring this out. I think it's helpful to sort of think of post-sepsis events in the same spectrum of post-intensive care syndrome, and so that that research in that space can kind of be shared and extrapolated to what we understand about sepsis survivors, and really thinking about PICS or post-intensive care syndrome, post-sepsis syndrome, and now post-COVID syndrome, and where these syndromes kind of overlap, um, what, what features are unique to them, what mechanisms are common, um, and how, how can treatments either be similar or differentiated across these three conditions. I did want to point out that there are some molecular level um, changes after sepsis that persist and do seem to be related to adverse outcomes after sepsis, because I think this is super cool. It's not just this kind of vague syndrome, but there's actually, you know, physiologic or uh, molecular level changes that happen that persist after sepsis. So this group from Pittsburgh studied um, inflammatory and immunosuppressive biomarkers in sepsis survivors, and they looked at a, a host of different markers, but the two that ended up being kind of persistently aberrant after sepsis were um, high sensitivity C-reactive protein um, and soluble program death ligand 1. And so naturally, one is an inflammatory marker and one is an immunosuppressive marker because 
sepsis is just kind of a pain in the ass like that. Um, but patients who had both of these aberrants, they're both immunosuppressed and hyperinflammatory markers that were elevated, those patients had um, worse outcomes. So dramatically worse one-year uh, mortality, 23% versus 4% in patients that had neither of those elevated. Um, they also had higher risk of readmission. Um, for patients that had both of those elevated markers. Um, so we're still kind of understanding this, um, you know, why why both inflammation and immunosuppression and what can you do about that? We're still kind of learning more about this, but I think this is a really, really interesting avenue of research that will help us um, tailor some uh, intervention strategies in the future. So speaking of, how do we improve outcomes for sepsis survivors? We've kind of talked about this really morose picture for sepsis survivors and what can we do to actually improve those outcomes? Um, certainly we need to keep focusing on that early um, sepsis management. So early identification, early antibiotics, chemodynamic support, all those things that we've been doing really well to help improve mortality, probably also help long-term outcomes. You know, the quicker you can get that dysregulated response under control, probably the better for long-term outcomes. Um, so we should keep focusing on that. We're learning more about things to do in the hospital to help promote recovery. So things like mobility and uh, preventing delirium, family engagement, those type of things that help um, promote recovery while the patients are in the hospital. One thing that really hadn't been understood or studied much was how do we care for patients in that really vulnerable post period? So we've just, they're ready, they're, they're, cured enough for discharge, um, so they're not still on pressors or anything like that. They're ready for discharge, but by all intents and purposes, they are not healthy yet. They still need a lot of care, and we really don't understand exactly how to care for patients in a way that promotes their recovery after discharge. Um, a helpful framework for thinking about care after discharge um, was put uh, forth in this review article Dr. Prescott and Angus wrote. I think I mentioned this earlier a couple of years ago. You should definitely read this. Um, but the, these kind of four categories of care after sepsis. Um, one is screening for common impairments. So things we talked about before, like physical functional impairment, mental health um, problems, swallowing dysfunction is common after sepsis. Screening for those things and then, and then treating as needed. Um, reviewing and adjust medications is, is huge in this population. Patients are you don't have a lot of comorbidities or often on a lot of medications. They get new meds in the hospital. They uh, have their meds held in the hospital. And really sorting all that out, I think, is a lot of the work to be done in the post-discharge period. Um, anticipating and mitigating risk for deterioration. So kind of symptom monitoring and escalating care when it's needed. Um, and then because these patients are sick and sepsis is a, is a life-altering event, really evaluating and addressing goals of care is an important part of um, the post-sepsis care. And so if I asked you um, in your sepsis survivors, how many of these things are you actually doing for your patients or is your group or your hospital doing for your patients? You'd probably say what we all said, which is, well, this is kind of common sense. Of course, we're doing this for our patients. This is all very standard care. Um, we provide good care. Of course, we're doing this for our patients. Um, but we actually studied this and we went back and looked retrospectively at how frequently these care elements were being done for sepsis survivors. And we found that they were really pretty inconsistently done for patients. Um, so 6% of patients had none of those um, care elements done for them in the 90 days after hospital discharge. Only 11% of patients had all four of those things. Those very kind of common sense, of course, we're doing them things. Only 11% of patients had all of those things. 
And what we found was that um, the number of those care elements that patients received was related in, in a dose-dependent fashion with uh, risk of 90-day hospitalization and mortality. Um, so that if you got all four of those care elements, um, you had an 80% lower odds of hospital readmission or mortality compared to patients who got zero or one of those. So we think that doing those things um, can help sepsis survivors avoid readmission and avoid mortality. Uh, but how do we operationalize that support or how do we make sure that patients are getting that type of support after discharge? A couple of options, things that have been tried and studied, um, a post-ICU or post-sepsis follow-up clinic, um, providing this care through kind of existing mechanisms, so enhancing support and home health. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about our, our work using sepsis transition navigators. So the ICU follow-up clinic, I don't know if you guys have an ICU follow-up clinic or you've developed a post-COVID follow-up clinic um, at Maryland, um, but this is uh, a really intriguing care delivery model. The idea that patients can come to clinic and there's a multidisciplinary team that can address all the different types of needs that they may have after an ICU stay. Um, and in some ways, uh, I just sort of extrapolate the data on ICU clinics with post-sepsis clinic because it, about half of patients in a post-ICU clinic uh, tend to be post-sepsis, so a lot of overlap there. Um, but in general, this makes a lot of sense in terms of care delivery, um, and there are a lot of really smart uh, groups working on helping to understand um, how to best implement these type of clinics. Some qualitative work where um, these investigators asked patients and family members um, what was good about the ICU clinic and what helped you in the ICU clinic. They said things like care coordination, adaptation to their new kind of lives, peer support, symptom management, socioeconomic guidance, and providing educational materials were the things that stood out to patients and family as important. And unfortunately, that there's not a lot of strong evidence to support these types of clinics being effective and actually um, moving the needle in terms of patient outcomes. Um, in general, the, the studies don't really show effectiveness when they're um, evaluated in, in a rigorous fashion. And I don't think this is because ICU clinics don't work. I think it's because we're still trying to sort out a lot of the implementation factors um, related to ICU clinics. Um, and this study really nicely identified and laid out the specific barriers related to a post-ICU clinic. Um, it, again, if you guys have a post-ICU clinic, I'm sure these are all very familiar to you, but lack of funding, um, lack of physical space, identifying the appropriate patients for a, an ICU clinic. Really, a big one is, is patient and family attendance or patient attendance, really. Um, most of the studies of post-ICU clinics, and again, you probably see this in your practice, the no-show rate is at least 50%. Um, it can be higher. And so that makes it really hard to study because you're really diluting out the effect quite a bit, uh, but also hard to operationalize in terms of making sure that this is a high-value um, way to deliver care. So again, a lot of smart people are working on this, and I think they'll figure out some solutions to figure out how um, to best implement ICU follow-up clinics um, to help ICU and post-sepsis survivors. The second thing was kind of enhancing the support that's already there. So, so things like primary care providers and home health. And this group um, from Penn evaluated sepsis survivors um, who had home health 
and they found that patients who got a home health visit within 48 hours and saw their physician within one week, those patients were less likely to be readmitted within 30 days. Um, not just one, not just either one, but both. If you had both of those things, it reduced your risk of 30-day hospital readmission. Um, in, this, in this study, this was a retrospective evaluation, only 28% of sepsis survivors received both of those care, um, those early follow-up elements. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done to kind of improve the implementation of early follow-up, as well as prioritize which patients need to be seen um, earlier to really gain the benefit there. And finally, I'll talk about another care delivery model, which is our work in terms of um, sepsis transition navigators. So we kind of put together all the different pieces of, of data on sepsis survivors and ICU survivors, and we developed a what we think is a, a kind of high-value way to deliver post-sepsis care through um, nurse navigators. And so nurse, our nurse navigators deliver post-sepsis care for 90 days through telehealth. So primarily through the telephone um, and some EHR messaging, um, but they follow patients for 90 days and they really provide this multi-component um, type of support from care coordination, medication reconciliation, um, referrals, psychosocial support, all kinds of different things, um, very multi-component layers of support. We studied this in a randomized controlled trial. We randomized about 700 patients from three hospitals in North Carolina to receive either the nurse navigator support, we call it the sepsis transition and recovery program, so the STAR program, either the STAR program or usual care. Um, and in this randomized controlled trial, we found that patients who received the STAR program had a lower rate of rehospitalization or mortality at 30 days compared to patients who received usual care. Um, so a third of patients in the usual care group were um, died or rehospitalized in 30 days, and 28.7% of patients in the STAR group experienced that outcome. So a lot of questions um, in terms of how we deliver post-sepsis support in a way that will actually help uh, mitigate all of these adverse events that sepsis survivors experience. So, so what are the necessary components of care? who delivers that care, which type of patients get what care, what outcomes should we be measuring? Um, is readmission really the right outcome? Should we be measuring more patient-centered uh, outcomes? How is this care gonna be reimbursed and can we implement and scale up the, that care? So lots and lots of questions. I'll spend the rest of the time, a few minutes talking about this question, um, which is kind of the, the topic that Andrea mentioned, um, which is how do we tell which patients get which types of care? This is increasingly important uh, question given the kind of setting that we have with trying to do more with less, um, having uh, a really constrained resource environment in terms of financial restraints and, and human capital restraints without with, you know, kind of limitations on the number of clinicians that we have to provide care. How do we, how do we target care in a way that um, is most likely to benefit patients? Whoops. So um, this is the, the work that we did um, sub sepsis survivors, um, basically to see if we could take this heterogeneous pool of sepsis survivors and classify them into distinct subtypes, patients that had differential risk for adverse outcomes and patients who potentially could be targeted with different types of therapy. Um, and so this work was supported by the National, National Library of Medicine 
So we took a, a large registry of sepsis survivors, about 21,000 patients, and it's this really heterogeneous group of sepsis survivors. And we applied latent class analysis to identify latent subtypes, again, within this really kind of heterogeneous population. Um, picked our indicators for developing the model from five domains that we felt really were kind of linked to potential targets. So we had uh, indicators related to the sepsis course, indicators related to their patient's prior health status, um, functional status, complications influencing their discharge needs, and post-discharge access to care. So we took these 14 indicators um, and developed latent class models to find an optimal solution of uh, classifications. Um, and it turned out the optimal solution had five different uh, groups or subtypes of sepsis survivors. And you can see the proportion of each indicator um, for each of the classes across the that are listed across the top. Um, blue means that indicator was not very common. Red is increasingly common. So the groups were um, one, uh, barriers to care or low risk barriers to care. Um, group two, um, I'm sorry. Group two was previously healthy patients who had a severe illness and complex needs after discharge, and they also had barriers to care. Group three was uh, characterized by multimorbidity. Group four was characterized by poor functional status. And group five was we sort of call the kitchen sink group where they had existing poor health and a severe illness and complex needs after discharge. And you can see how these groups are distinct based on the way that they sort of um, populate the indicators. And so um, in terms of outcomes, those groups are actually associated with different levels of risk for post-sepsis outcomes. This is readmission, which I'll talk about in a second. They, they had different risks of mortality, which I, I haven't shown here, but they did have different risks of mortality. But for readmission, um, these are the overall readmission rates in the salmon color. You can see that each of the five groups had different rates of hospital readmission. Um, and what's really interesting to me more so is the proportion of readmissions that were ambulatory care sensitive conditions. You recall earlier we talked about ambulatory care sensitive conditions being sort of this modifiable or preventable type uh, conditions causing readmission. And so, for example, in the poor functional status group, um, they don't have the highest overall readmission rate, but about half of the readmissions in, uh, in this group were ambulatory care sensitive or uh, prevent, uh, potentially preventable. So this group may be a very appealing group to target for interventions because you may be able to get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of preventing those readmissions. On the other hand, the existing poor health with severe illness and complex needs after discharge, they had the highest rate of readmission overall. So in some ways, they seem like a good target, but a relatively low rate of those uh, readmission or low proportion of those readmissions were ambulatory care sensitive conditions. So in some ways, this group has a really high rate of readmission, but there's really not that much you can do about it. So, I mean, we should help these people, but um, you may not be get that much bang for your buck in terms of preventing readmissions by targeting this group versus, say, this group, which has a much higher proportion of preventable readmissions. Um, so the last thing that I'll uh, show as far as data go um, is thinking about targeting interventions to these different groups. Um, so once we had developed these groups um, using a latent class model, we went back to our clinical trial population, the STAR program trial, 
And we went through and looked at what types of care the nurse navigators were doing for patients. And we categorized all the different types of care or things that you could do to help patients into these, some of these things that you see down on the bottom. Um, and then we looked to see how frequently those care elements were being done belonging to each of the different classes that we defined. Um, and there's a lot going on here, but each class is a different color. And you can see that the, act, the care that's being delivered to patients really differs based on which class you're in. Um, so for example, medication management, it's happening much more frequently in patients in groups two, three, and five, and not that common in um, these two groups. So this really kind of suggests there might be the potential to target care um, to patients with particular vulnerabilities. Um, so, you know, who cares about these classes? In some ways, it is just academically interesting, um, but I think there are a lot of important applications um, that are generated by this type of work. Um, one is prognostic. Um, so knowing what type of sepsis survivor your patient is can help you kind of predict what their risk for readmission is, what their risk for mortality is. Um, we talked a little bit about specific tailoring of treatments. Um, so our, our STAR program that was uh, shown to be effective is this very broad, multi-component intervention, really throwing everything at everybody, but it might be a more high-value way to deliver care to be able to target that care uh, more specifically to patients belonging to different subtypes. Um, I think understanding the subtypes helps uh, enhance our understanding of the mechanisms underlying these long-term outcomes, and so continuing to kind of clarify that. And then when you think about clinical trials of interventions, understanding these subtypes may help enrich clinical trials for patients that are more likely to benefit from a particular type of intervention. For example, some of the mobility interventions may be more effective if you were to enrich the trial for patients that had that poor functional status subtype compared to some of the other subtypes. And then thinking about what's next, um, our, our work, our next work um, is related to prospectively studying interventions that are guided by those subtypes. Um, so we've developed interventions tailored specifically to the subtypes and we're studying whether it's better to, you know, comprehensively deliver this care to everyone, or is it better to target the care to patients belonging to each subtype? Um, I think it'll be really interesting as the science progresses to understand how biomarker profiles overlap or don't overlap with these clinical profiles so that we can better refine the subtypes and really help better understand the mechanisms. Um, and then finally, uh, it, when it comes to understanding sepsis survivorship and how we can promote recovery, there really do at this point seem to be more questions than answers, um, but it's really exciting to be you know, in the place where we get to be the ones asking the questions um, and trying to answer them in a way that helps our patients. That's all that I have. Um, certainly welcome to take questions if anyone has them or um, let you all enjoy your Friday afternoon, whatever works. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing this work with us. Um, I think that anyone who's um, unfortunately had to listen to me drone on about some of the research that I do, I think understanding kind of the subphenotypes of um, these very heterogeneous syndromes like sepsis or ARDS is, is super important. And I think that the idea of predictive and prognostic enrichment is also really important because I think all of our clinical trials in both of these disease processes fail, probably because we're including uh, very, very heterogeneous populations. 